darkness is not an affirmative force. It simply reoccupies the space vacated by the light. This is the Hamilton Corner on American Family Radio. It should be uncomfortable for a believer to live as a hypocrite. Delivering people out of the bondage of mainstream media and the philosophies of this world. God has called you and me to be his ambassadors. Even in this dark moment, let's not miss our moment. And now, The Hamilton Corner. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to The Hamilton Corner here on American Family Radio. I'm your host, Abraham Hamilton III. Jay Mack is behind the control panel. <laughs> and we are ready to rock and roll with today's edition of the, pro- of the program because you have made it to your on your way to the weekend edition of the program. And as I told you yesterday, uh, we're going to get into it uh, today um, because many of you, just like me, you've been seeing uh, objections from Goebbels Inc. all over um, our culture uh, condemning what they describe as Christian nationalism. And what I want to point out is that their concern really is not about anything nationalistic, frankly. Uh, It's another... um, Loaded phrasing employed for the express purposes of confronting those of you who are Christians and to intimidate you, to encourage you, or to manipulate you to absenting yourselves from civic processes and, frankly, life in public in our nation. But we're going to get to that in a moment. At this very moment, most of you, many of you, if not most of you, are making that transition from your part-time jobs where you generate an income to your full-time jobs where you cultivate an outcome. And I want to encourage you among the things that are prioritized for you and your family this weekend, uh, that gathering with the saints for worship is at the top of that list. Um, This is a command that was given to us in Scripture. Uh, It is a command who, as all of God's instructions, when we obey him, it has great benefit for us. Uh, we get to eat the, the fruit or get to enjoy the, the fruit of that obedience. And it is God glorifying um, as things continue to, to continue to progress. The reality that we as members of the body of Christ individually, that we need the collective body of Christ will be more and more evident. That, that is the reality. And so it would be better for you and for me that when we need other members of the Lord's bride, for that to be not a forced resource availing, but it would flow from a God-breathed, Holy Spirit agencyed um, cultivation of relationship that exists prior to the necessity of making a demand on a brother or sister in the Lord. So as you make that transition, please, please, please put that at the top, at the very, very top of your priorities. Now, we're going to go to the Word of God. We've gone to this passage before, but I want to revisit it today in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the saints of God in Rome. Uh, You have the Jewish rabbi, Paul, who was Saul, who became Paul, who has spent his life evangelizing and making disciples amongst the Gentiles. That's not exclusively what he did, but that is the majority of his uh, gospel engagement, and, and it is from that engagement that we have the Pauline epistles in the New Testament. Well, as Paul is writing to uh, 
the believers in Rome. He says this in verse 1 of chapter 12. Therefore, I'll tell you like I always do, when you see a therefore, you need to ask yourself and to find out what is it therefore. This therefore is a reference to everything that the Apostle Paul has said in chapters 1 through 11 prior to this expression. So I would encourage you in order to fully understand what Paul is saying in chapter 12, that you go back and read chapters 1 through 11. But in verse 1 of chapter 12, Paul says, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, I'm going to take my time a little bit to walk through these short verses, but they're power packed because the Apostle Paul, again, reemphasizes the fact that the persons to whom he has addressed this instruction via Holy Spirit is brethren. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, this is evidence that the directives that follow are intended to apply to the lives of believers. This is the Apostle Paul saying to believers, brethren, by the mercies of God, I urge you by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. The fact that the Apostle Paul is saying this to Christians in Rome should immediately cause you and I to pause for a moment and reflect on the fact that, hmm, the Apostle Paul is instructing believers to present their bodies as living and holy sacrifices. Why would he do that? Could it be, and I've said this to you guys before, God knows very well that when we are born again, we do not automatically or instantaneously get new minds. We get new natures. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any man's in Christ, he is a new creature. He's not trying to become a new creature. He's not en route to becoming a new creature. If any is in Christ, he or she is a new creature. That new creaturedom, if you will, um, is the product of regeneration. The Greek phrasing for regeneration is ganao anothen, born from above. This is what earlier this week we were talking uh, about Jesus explaining to Nicodemus that unless you're born again, you can't even see the kingdom of God. You must be born from above. And then he goes on and say, born of water and the spirit, what he's saying to uh, Nicodemus. So back to the text in Romans chapter 12, Paul is telling believers to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Because you have Christians who are embroiled in a Roman culture, they were accustomed, very similar to the Corinthians, very similar to the Colossians. The cultures were similar. There were some regional distinctions, but they're very similar. They were accustomed to using their bodies in a manner that was not holy or a living sacrifice unto God. They were familiar with the concept of sacrifices as this was a, 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 a robustly pagan society that included all manner of sacrifices. And Paul is utilizing their awareness of sacrifices to say, listen, the sacrifice that the Lord desires of you is to live the lifestyle of worship typified and evinced by how you use your bodies. So for the people, and, and, and I, I don't know, I, I haven't heard the album and all of that, um, but I, I know, you know, 
Beyonce, who who I told you guys plainly, this woman is functioning as a witch, advocating for all manner of paganism. Um, you know, I I I actually saw that Black is King thing that she did, and then she put out a song recently encouraging so-called church girls to use their bodies in a sinful manner. And you have lots of church girls who are swallowing it up, saying that she gives me permission to do what I really, really want to do. Now, of course, you guys know church attendance is not synonymous with regeneration. But for them to be exposed to the truth at, at some level, yet still allow <laughs> witch-laden priestess be nonsa to encourage you to do the opposite of what Romans 12 says, it's a big problem. Then the Apostle Paul goes on. Oh, man, I got to hurry up. Paul then contrasts when he, he goes on, present your body as living and holy, as a holy sacrifice. This living and holy sacrifice is acceptable to God. Acceptable to God. You hear me say all the time, worship ultimately is a lifestyle. It's more than just a particular activity. We do various activities that are worship-filled, like a gathering with the saints for worship, studying the Lord's word, praying, worshiping him in song, uh, utilizing our the members of our bodies in, man, in ways that are glorifying to him, understanding that the marriage bed is undefiled, which is not synonymous with you do anything you want to do in the marriage bed. It's a whole other conversation that needs to be had within the body of Christ today. Uh, but the marriage, the marriage bed, the marital context is the only, the only context that God is ordained as acceptable for intimacy between a husband and a wife. Everything outside of that context is abominable to God and a perversion of what the Lord intended for the one flesh union for husbands and wives. Then the Apostle Paul goes on and he says, and do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul uh, contrasts worldly conformity, and I've explained this before, suskematizo is the Greek word, which means to be squeezed into the mold of something that you're not, to follow the pattern of something that you are not, to follow the pattern of another. So Paul is affirming the fact, if any man is in Christ, and remember he's addressing this to brethren, to believers, if any man or woman is in Christ, he or she is a new creature. So for the believer to remain living in worldly lifestyles, it is to conform. It is to follow the pattern of something that you are not. You are no longer, 1 Corinthians 6. All of these categories of sin will not inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You are no longer these categories. Now you have been cleansed from them. So in light of this cleansing, Paul is saying, so now be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We've, we've explained before the Greek word there is metamorpho, where we get our English word metamorphosis from. The process we understand biologically of the, the caterpillar that goes into the chrysalis, caterpillar to chrysalis to butterfly. The metamorpho is written in the tense that this is a continual process, that this caterpillar to chrysalis to butterfly, caterpillar to chrysalis to butterfly, because as long as we have breath in our lungs on this side of eternity, you and me will continue to grow in what's called the sanctification process. Sanctification is instantly conditional while simultaneously being continual. 
we inherit the imputed sanctified position as a result as a result of what Christ has done for us. His righteousness is imputed to us, which is the basis for our justification. It's not based on our performance. It's based on what Christ has secured for us. In light of that, we now have the opportunity for the first time in our lives experiences to grow conditionally, meaning to go to where our life's condition matches our position in Christ, to grow to where, as you heard me say before, being born again doesn't make you and I sin less, but it does result in you and I sinning less. So in contrast to being squeezed into the mold of another, to follow the pattern of something that you are no longer, the Spirit of God through the Apostle Paul says, so in light of that, be transformed. How are we going to be transformed? By the renewing of your mind. Mind renewal is the means of transformation. Mind renewal as the means of transformation is something that was what takes place as we are sanctified. Then Paul concludes this verse by saying, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is. Brothers and sisters, the word of God directly connects the capacity for you and I to grow in discernment directly connects it to our sanctification. So if we have believers who are genuine believers, but we're lacking in discernment, the scripture is diagnosing that that lack of discernment is evincing a lack of sanctification. It doesn't undo the sanctification that we receive positionally being in Christ, but the progressive continual work where we agree with God about sin and about righteousness and about judgment, about ourselves, we agree with God and we seek to grow from being caterpillars and being in the chrysalis to where we can fly as butterflies. The quality of that sanctification, the quality of that metamorpho, the quality of that transformation is what drives discernment. But what we have by and large in our country is lots of people professing to be believers a mile wide, but an inch deep. That mile wide, but inch deep results in a diminished discernment capacity. And so we have sometimes very, very well-meaning people who find themselves duped and co-opted into an agenda that is foreign to our messiahs, which should make that agenda foreign to you and me. And when I say the agenda, notice I'm not tethering it to any particular political rhetoric or anything like that. The agenda for Christ followers should be the king's agenda as we seek first his kingdom. Shining light into the darkness. This is the Hamilton Quarter on American Family Radio. Welcome back to the Hamilton Corner. Abraham Hamilton III here. Well, let's get into it, shall we? So as I said in the first segment, many of you have been regaled as of late with consistent protests from many of the sycophants in Goebbels Inc. lamenting the <gasps> gasp. Christian nationalism. Have you seen it? <gasps> have you been... I've, have you seen Christian nationalism? Kind of like that Haley Joel Osborne movie, I See Dead People. <laughs> and isn't it remarkable how this um, accusation 
has grown legs. And what I want to share with you is that the ultimate source of the issue is not the proverbial Christian nationalism. It's actually Orthodox Christianity. And uh, there we go. All right. And I'm going to explain why I'm saying that. The arguments in this regard, in my opinion, are, the, are disingenuous and, 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 and in true Antonio Gramsci fashion is, the, is, is another iteration of the weaponization of language and concepts and ideas in order to ultimately make a socio-political point. Now, I do know that there are believers who have been expressing their concern for the syncretism of the gospel and politics, which I'll tell you plainly, I concur with that. Um, I, it is an affront to God to endeavor to make a politics synonymous with the gospel because it is not. However, as I have said to you, people who are born again as a result of the Lord opening their hearts to receive the gospel often end up embracing public policy positions that are consistent with and that affirm the truths of Scripture. And there's no need to be shy or bashful about that. People starting in the legal community and then those who attempt to assert um, that, oh, but, but there's a separation of church and state, one, show their constitutional illiteracy and ignorance. And two, they are willfully ignorant of something that many atheists are now coming to realize. That if you study human history, the civilization of mankind is directly commensurate to the ascendancy of a biblical worldview applied in popular culture. Just, just do a brief study in history. You know, the Middle Ages were dark. The Dark Ages were dark for a reason. You know, cultures prior to the ascendancy of, of a biblical worldview in Christianity, uh, you had previous cultures, the, you know, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, the Babylonians. These, these cultures were barbaric. Barbaric. That there, there was no inherent basis for justice, the, the cry for justice, basically, with tooth and claw. If, you know, if I'm Leonidas and I could pin you to the wall with my spear, well, that makes me the boss. If I could beat all of y'all up, then I'm the chief. <laughs> just, do, just do a little research, a little homework on that point. The disingenuous nature of this current cultural uh, cruise missile is very similar, and I've discussed this before, but I haven't done it in a while, so I'm going to go back to this first as we set up this Christian nationalism conversation. It's very similar to the deceptive tactic of saying evangelical Christians voted for Trump, 81% voted for Trump. If you hear that stat, immediately the purpose of it, and it's very similar, like I told you before, to the Billy Bush, you know, Access Hollywood tape, where you have people talking about, you know, what, what, what Trump said, what he did, all this other kind of stuff. Uh, the old tape, and I told you, these guys don't care about that activity. They love Trump. N none of these people were surprised to know that Trump has a history of womanizing. They weren't surprised. You know, Jesse Jackson wasn't surprised when he gave Trump the honor, the, the reward, the award at the Rainbow Push Coalition gathering. None of these rappers were surprised when he was putting them all in their songs. They want to go up like Trump. They want to ball like Trump. None of them were surprised. And when you have Anderson Cooper and Don Lemon trying to lecture American society on sexual morality, as I said before, y'all going to have to miss me with that. 
And so the deceptive nature nature of this current cultural cruise missile is very similar to the 81% barb. I even heard a Christian rapper saying the 81%, look what they invited. And you know why it was such a deceptive notion? Because 81% is a pretty average percentage of evangelical Christians who vote for the presidential nominee of the Republican Party in every presidential election since the year 2000. Since the year 2000. So if how do you want to do you want to do a reverse order? We'll start with Trump. 81%, 2016, over 80%, 2016, 2020, evangelicals voting for former President Trump. Does anybody know what percentage of evangelicals voted for Mitt the Mormon? Anybody want to take a guess? 79%. Anybody want to take a guess? Admit the Mormon's election, of course, was in 2012 when he ran against former President Barack Obama in his effort to earn to win re-election. Evangelicals voted for evangelical Christians who voted in the presidential election. 79%, about 79% of them voted for Mitt, the, Mitt Romney. Shall we go to 2008 with John McCain, who actually is the low point for evangelical Christians who vote for the Republican nominee for the presidency. But John McCain had somewhere between 73, 75, 77 percent of evangelicals, which was a low point. George W. Bush in 2000 and 2004 had over 80 percent. Does everybody see what I'm saying here, what we're seeing here? So here's the not so secret secret. If you follow anything politically, evangelical Christians over the last 22 years, the last 20 years, I'll leave it there, 2020 being the last year, in presidential elections have voted about 80% of them have voted for the Republican nominee for the presidency. So what happened in the 2016 election wasn't an aberration for evangelical Christians. Now, if you want to say turnout was higher, then we can have that conversation. But if we're going, we're going to have that conversation, you have to admit what I'm telling you. That evangelical Christian support for the Republican nominee for the presidency has been pretty consistently about the same percentage points for those who vote. So the honest question will be, well, why do you think that is the case? Could it be that these evangelical Christians weren't voting for? Here we go with the boogeyman. Racism. <laughs> could, could it be? That they voted for Mr. Trump in 2016, former President Trump, over she shall never be president. Because of policy issues, policy issues that are relatively consistent in terms of political uh, platforms all the way back to George W. Bush. Perhaps that's the reason because evangelical Christians realize that the policies advocated by Al Gore, you know, he invented the Internet, right? Are very similar to the policies that would be advocated for one Barack Hussein Obama. Which would be very similar to the policies that would be advocated by one John Lurch Carey. Which, be, which would be very similar to the policies advocated by she who shall never be president. You want to know one, one way we, I know that is to be the case? Guess who included nearly all of those people in his cabinet once he got elected? Barack Hussein Obama. Now, do you think Barack Obama would have had she shall never be president as his secretary of state if they disagreed policy-wise? Do you think that Barack Hussein Obama would have had John Lurch Carey 
serving in his administration if they disagree policy-wise. So my point in saying, saying, saying all of this to you is just to show you just how deceptive the 81% phrasing actually is. The bigger and more important question should be, why do we think evangelical Christians vote the way they vote in such high percentages and have a conversation about policy? But that would be too honest. Now, moving to this discourse in <laughs> nationalism. People in our culture don't really have a problem with Christian nationalism. You know how I know? <laughs> the majority of utilization, and this is according to, and I have statistics for you. This is according to research by sociologist Ryan Burge, who studied this, who studies the intersection of faith and um, politics in our nation. Who did a little study who found that the overwhelming, overwhelming majority of politicking done in America's pulpits actually take place amongst, he, they call them progressive, I would call them regressive Christians. And simply put, regressive, Christ, regressive Christians embrace doctrines that are contrary to the orthodoxy of Scripture. But when you hear protests about Christian nationalism, you never hear anybody saying, yeah, because you have too many progressives uh, telling people who to vote from their pulpits. You never hear that, do you? J. Mac, have you ever heard that? Christian nationalism is so bad because all of these progressives are using the pulpits to advocate for policies. The research shows that there is a minority in what would be described as conservative churches where politicking is employed. Now, I will not be dishonest to say that you don't have it on the conservative side. Of course you do. But there are they are exceptions. By and large, the overwhelming majority of what would be described as orthodox Christians have no politicking going on in their pulpits. So then what's the problem? See, the issue is you actually carrying out what you believe into the public square. Now let me give you a couple of examples. Just recently, many of you may be aware there's a there's a pretty popular uh contest going on in Georgia to where Stacey Abrams is running against Governor Kemp for the, the, the governorship. Uh, four years ago, Governor Kemp beat her in the election, which, of course, she complained about that the election was stolen from her. Although she's saying now she never said that. <laughs> Isn't it funny how some people get to question the election results and others don't? Kind of depends on your worldview and your civic engagement positioning. Stacey Abrams happened to be visiting a church. The name of this church is Allen Temple AME Church. Allen Temple AME. Mm -hmm. Allen Temple AME, and AME is an abbreviation for the African Methodist Episcopal Church. The AME Church has a long history in, in America. It was founded by a profound a uh, man of God who was a former slave who ended up pastoring uh, people from all ethnicities early in America's history, who ended up having, uh, being rejected from uh, multi-ethnic worship in the 1700s and started what became known as the African Methodist Episcopal Church, whose doctrine was very similar to the churches that he was part of before. But you had some people because of the sin of partiality who did not want to worship with more melanated people. This is a historical fact. Uh, however, there has been a tradition that has formed in the AME church 
and the pastor of Allen Methodist Episcopal Church, I'm sorry, Allen Temple African Methodist Episcopal Church, which, by the way, is located in Woodstock, Georgia, 232 Arnold Mill Road, Woodstock, Georgia. The pastor is Reverend Dr. Joseph Nathaniel Cousin Sr. Put some respect on all of his names. <laughs> Reverend Dr. Joseph Nathaniel Cousin Sr. He invited Stacey Abrams to come to his church. While on the microphone in his church, she had some things to say that some might describe as, well, is this not the condemned Christian nationalism? Mr. J. Mack, please play clip number one. We live in a state that right now has decided to take cruelty to a new level. I am the daughter of two pastors. I have a strong moral core. I was trained to read and understand the Bible, and I will tell you this, there is nothing about the decision to eliminate access to abortion care that is grounded in anything other than cruelty and meanness and danger in the state of Georgia. Nothing. Abortion care is a medical issue. It is a medical decision, and in the state of Georgia, it is a dangerous one. Brian Kemp, and yes, I'm going to call his name, is a hard-right religious extremist who has decided that he knows better than any woman about her body and has decided to make women second-class citizens in the state of Georgia in the year of our Lord, 2022. Mm. Now, it would have been one thing if Stacey Abrams had these passioned remarks at some political campaign speech, but did I mention that she was on a microphone at Allen Temple African Methodist Episcopal Church? To where she says, I guess this is, a, is, is an indication of her credibility on doctrinal clarity. I am the daughter of two pastors. How does that happen? <laughs> but leaving that aside for the moment, she says that, oh, oppo opposition to what she described as abortion care is not grounded in anything other than meanness and cruelty. Hmm. I wonder if Stacey Abrams and Reverend Doctor of Allen Temple AME, I wonder if they realize Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28 reveals that all human beings are made in the image and likeness of God. I wonder if they're familiar with Psalm 139 when the Lord through, the, through King David articulated the reality of personhood existing prior to delivery. For you, O Lord, saw my unformed substance and ordained all the days out of form me before any of them were. I wonder if she's familiar with Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, when the Lord says to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. I wonder if Stacey Abrams, I mean, because she says the opposition to abortion care is not grounded in anything but cruelty. Could it be? That you're wrong theologically, Miss Abrams? <laughs> I wonder if they're familiar with Luke 139, when Elizabeth visits, when Mary visits Elizabeth and the babe in her tummy leaped who was John the Baptist, who was filled with the Spirit of God inside his mother's womb. I wonder if they're familiar with Luke 18, when Jesus suffered the little children. Some Bibles translate that as infants come unto me, that the same Greek word brephos is used for both. That a child is a child in the womb and a child is a child outside of the womb. And then I wonder, understanding the scriptural foundation for personhood existing before delivery of a child, I wonder if Miss Abrams is familiar with the sixth commandment that says you shall not murder. Murdering is the, is the elimination, the termination of innocent human life. Does somebody want to tell me what medical decision 
abortion is? If you don't abort the life, what's going to happen with it? What's going to happen to it? It's going to keep it growing. The Hamilton Quarter Podcast and one-minute commentaries are available at AFR.net. Back to the Hamilton Quarter on American Family Radio. Welcome back to the Hamilton Corner. Abraham Hamilton III here. Now, in spite of Miss Abrams, I'll just call it theological malpractice, the focus of the conversation today is, have you heard anyone in Goebbels, Inc. condemn what Miss Abrams did at Allen Temple AME Church in Woodstock, Georgia? Is that an example of the Christian nationalism that is so problematic for society? And again, this isn't new. I'm just sharing these with you as modern examples. That's, that's like literally happening right now of the very thing that they're, they're trying to tell you that they want to eliminate, but they don't really want to eliminate it. They only want to eliminate it if you apply the scripture as the Lord has revealed himself in it. <laughs> Which is another way of saying they want to make sure the Christian is not involved in the nation. <laughs> they want to exclude Christianity, Christ following from national affairs. That's the concern. So the goal is to intimidate, to manipulate, and to, to push you and me to the margins of society to where we're actually afraid to speak what we really believe, to say what we really believe, let alone vote according to our convictions. Because that becomes politically incorrect speech. But that's not the only example I have for you. We'll go now to Atlanta, Georgia. Mm-hmm. And we're going to visit, and I, and I said this is not, I, I, could, I could literally fill the whole show for probably five days and still not be done with just clips of this happening in church. Specifically, regressive politics and regressive policies demanded from the pulpit in churches in this country. I'm telling you. But the people that decry Christian nationalism, they aren't saying anything about that. Because what they don't want is biblical orthodoxy brought to bear on cultural issues, let alone electoral outcomes. We'll now go down to Atlanta, Georgia, to St. Philip African Methodist Episcopal Church, and we're going to visit the church where the Reverend D. Watley, Reverend Dr. D. Watley, is the senior pastor of this church. And this happened this past Sunday. At this church, and if you want to know the address for St. Philip AME Church, it is 240 Candler Road, South Southeast, Atlanta, Georgia, 30317. <laughs> Reverend Watley had a moment to where he called for accountability among the men in his Atlanta, Georgia, the, the Atlanta, Georgia church, where he serves as shepherd. Some of you may be aware, but in Georgia, Stacey Abrams, according to recent polling data, has only about 70 percent thereabouts support amongst more melanated men, black men in the state of Georgia. 30 percent of the more melanated men in Georgia are supporting Governor Brian Kemp. Now, some may say, well, 70 percent is still an extremely high number. It is a high number. But when you contextualize that number and you understand that usually the Democrat candidate enjoys upwards of 85% support amongst 
black people across the board, more melanated people across the board. So to have such a high number of more melanated men voting for her opponent, guess what that spells electorally for one Stacey Abrams? Perhaps this is why Reverend Dr. Watley had to utilize the pulpit for some campaigning. Please, often imitated, never duplicated, Mr. J. Mack. Play for the good people. Clip number two. Would all men stand? All men stand. Thank you for your presence. And um, I'm asking you to stand because, as has already been announced, voting matters, and this is a very critical election. And the stats so far are showing that we as men are not voting as we should for Stacey Abrams. We're the head. And if we're the head of our houses and our families, we cannot lead from behind. On her worst day, her absolutely worst day, she's 10 times better than Brian Kemp. And so I'm asking you, brethren, that wherever you go, whoever you touch, that you inform the rest of us, that it is critical that we do our part and get a governor who we know will support us. Now, now you know he was into it because he had the organ undergirding his plea, you see. And um, <laughs> I'm stopped. <laughs> Did you notice and, and, and did you notice similar to the Allen Temple AME church clip when Stacey Abrams was doing great violence to scripture and electioneering in the church on the microphone? Did you hear the audience applause? Just like at St. Philip AME. It seems as if the pastor is paying attention to the polls and saying that it seems that the men are not voting the way that we should. I said this when we played Tiffany Cross's clip from MSNBC. Could it be that the men who are endeavoring to lead their families have done their homework and realized, you know what? The policies advocated by Brian Kemp are better for me and my family. But you see, Reverend Dr. William Watley, you see, he could not abide that. So he uses... And if you've been in any churches like this, as I have, you know, you come to a point of service. Can I get all the men to stand? Did you get a close? Yes. We are the heads of our families, literally twisting <laughs> scripture in order to cause a specific political outcome. Have you heard anybody using this as an example of Christian nationalism that should be excoriated from that should be uh, purged from our society? You see. Our culture, especially the members of Goebbels Inc., they have no problem with Christian nationalism as long as it's their flavor of it. 
Just like many of you remember when uh, Kamala Harris was campaigning uh, against Glenn Youngkin and video was played in all in, in hundreds of churches all across all across Virginia. <laughs> and I'm laughing because it's it's so transparent and obvious. But because, again, the pearl clutchers really want to get you to use your moral standards against your better judgment. Don Lemon, Anderson Cooper, and the people didn't care nothing about Donald Trump's tape. They know you and me. They they know we have moral standards. They want to use our moral standards to compel us, to manipulate us, to vote against what we perceive as what we what would be better policy-wise for the country. A similar thing is happening now. They have no problem with Christian nationalism as long as it is regressive. If that wasn't enough for you, Reverend Dr. William Watley wasn't done. Mr. J. Mack, please play clip number three. But we need to do our part to make sure that Stacey Abrams is elected governor and Raphael Warnock is elected senator. We do not need a lying scalawag who has already sold his soul to a white anti-black establishment representing us in Washington, D.C. And so this is William Watley talking. And as your pastor, I ask that you listen to me. And uh, many of you are more astute than I am. And you know I'm telling the truth. God bless you, and God keep you. Amen. Money, money, money. Did you hear him get a little tune in his voice when he says, Stacey Abrams? <laughs> Stacey Abrams? Raphael Wona. That y'all know I call him the warlock. So, so <laughs> from the pulpit, now I have no problem calling names. You know, I, I, there's a place for it. The scripture, you know, uh, does include Paul saying Alexander the cobblesmith has done me great harm. You know, Jesus said whitewash, whitewash sepulchers, you brood of vipers. It goes on. But Jesus was talking about people who were opposing the gospel. And so was Paul. He called Brian Kip a lying scalawag from the pulpit. And I wanted to play the video so you can see it with your own eyes. Not only that, he's basically, not basically, he is using the influence of the ecclesiastical gathering of believers to call out men <laughs> in his church and saying that we are not voting the way we need to. How does he even know? How does he even know? Because he's reading the political verbiage. He doesn't know what the individual men in his church are doing unless he's Unless I could be wrong and he's talked to them all and knows that they've maybe voted early and they didn't vote for Stacey Abrams. And in that case, they if they did, it would be too late to change it. <laughs> then, oh, not only Stacey Abrams. Oh, no, we need to make sure that we elect Raphael Warnock, too. And in the beginning of the clip, it, we didn't include it here. But he was saying, our women are already doing the right thing. But now we men have to do our part. That's what he was saying before he said, we have to do our part. Is that the kind of Christian nationalism the culture is, is, is decrying? 
Oh, no, we need to challenge the 501c3 status, the nonprofit status of these two churches. They're electioneering for the pulpit. Do you think the Department of Justice will <laughs> raid these churches the way that they raided Mark Huck's home? Of course not. And my point, and I could do a lot of other things, uh, but my point, I, I felt like it was better to show you than tell you that there is an abundance of this type of material available, an abundance. But that's not the type of so-called Christian nationalism they have a problem with. And I'll say it again, like I said before, the syncretization of the gospel and political engagement is a problem. It's a problem. I have told you on this program, I believe one of the things that God is exposing in this hour is too many professing believers have made idols out of politics. And I would argue that that idolatry is across the political spectrum. It's not just regressives and constitutionally conservative-leaning people across the spectrum. And the Lord is confronting that idolatry. But remember that the culture will never lead you to the full counsel of the word of God. So when you have the culture almost unanimously coming up, oh, we have a big problem. What's the problem? The problem is Christian nationalism. No, their issue is not Christian nationalism. They want Reverend William Watley style Christian nationalism. Oh, yeah. yeah they, they want, do I need to say, Reverend Raphael Warnock's Christian nationalism. They like it when Raphael puts his celebration of killing innocent children in the womb as being consistent with compassion according to scripture. They like that. They don't want that kind of Christian nationalism gone. They want orthodox, Bible-believing Christianity purged from the culture. To simply say it, they want you and me to jettison our commitment to Christ in our public witness, our public engagement, and most importantly, in political discourse. And so I thought it was important to bring this to you to simply arm you. And, 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 and again, you don't have to be defensive. I'll never forget I heard Vody Bakken preach one time. And uh, I said, man, when somebody challenges the scripture, <laughs> you don't have to defend the scripture. Just let the lion loose. If somebody comes up saying, I challenge your lion to a fight, okay, you just let the lion loose. You let the word of God out. The word of God does its work. You don't have to try to defend yourself. Oh, you, J-Mac, you are a Christian nationalist. Like, oh, you can call me whatever name you want to call me. However, I have convictions that I'm unwilling to abandon. If you have a problem with the syncretization of politics and using the pulpit for electioneering, I could show you a whole host of video evidence that most of it that goes on in this country, it happens in the, of the regressive ilk. So I just want you to be equipped and prepared to respond in your own spheres of influence and you, when you're talking with friends and family members, you say, listen, the, the, the culture doesn't have a problem with Christian nationalism. They have a problem with people who actually believe what the Bible says as the, according to the Lord's revelation in Scripture, who lives according to the teachings of Scripture that does not comport with regressivism and, by and large, Democrat Party platform politics. Now, regressivism is a bipartisan institution. Right now, the Republican Party's platform doesn't reflect regressivism uh, largely. But you have members of the Republican Party that are just as regressive as Democrats. And so what I want you to be aware of is that you don't have to try to defend yourself from Christian nationalism. You just let the lion loose and say, let God be true. And every man who deviates from his word be alive. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast 
may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.